0: indeed thankful, aren't we, that we can come and gather. Amazing how precious these times, uh, even though they are different, how amazing how precious these times are to gather, albeit safely, but we gather to glorify God, we gather to study His Word and honor Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, and there we'll be looking at the last few words of Jesus on that wonderful day that He explained and taught these kingdom parables. After Jesus does this, speaks these two final parables, down in verse 53 it says Jesus went back to his hometown, and and there we find out that Jesus is rejected. Though his popularity is growing and would continue to grow and grow and grow throughout his ministry, thousands of people would follow him. At the same time is a growing rejection of Christ, a growing hatred of Jesus Christ, a growing resistance to Jesus Christ as well. And really, in the end, it has to do with the fact that they resist his basic worldview, what he's presenting to them as God's plan for history. This is what I'm calling the great plan of the kingdom. The more they realize what he's saying, the more they realize what he's explaining to them, the more they realize what he's actually preaching, the more they resist, and perhaps Early on, as Jesus began to present these ideas of the kingdom and the ideas of Himself as the suffering servant, as the Savior, not coming to judge, but coming to seek and save those who are lost, a a mission of mercy, a mission of love, as, as He began to explain that, not a mission of judgment. As He began to explain that, it became more and more clear to them what He was actually saying. And as they heard what He actually was saying, they began to resist and reject and even hate Jesus Christ. He gave this great and magnificent truths of the kingdom. And The more this plan was explained, the more they rejected him. Now, what truths of the kingdom are we talking about? Well, there are many truths we've studied here in Matthew chapter 13, many truths about the kingdom that we can find elsewhere in the New Testament, not just from Jesus Christ, but the Spirit-inspired, and a number of the apostles to Uh, Put together the New Testament, many truths about the kingdom. But Jesus does give some basic truths in these 13, in chapter 13, in these several parables, even in this basic, very basic parable here that gives us a very basic, a very fundamental view of eternity, view of the world. So let me read this for you, verse 47. And then he talks about uh, them understanding this down in the very last parable 51 and 52. So let me read to you 47 to 52. Follow along as I read aloud. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new, and what is old. This is the word of God. Do you all know what I mean when I use this phrase, biblical worldview? Biblical worldview? It doesn't mean that you simply have some Bible facts in your brain bouncing around in your head, or even a strong belief in Christ, or a strong belief or involvement at the church. It doesn't even mean, biblical worldview does not mean that you're involved in a lot of Christian stuff. You pray a lot, or you listen to Christian music, or give money to the church. Biblical worldview does not mean even that you're a Christian. There are many Christians who, generally speaking, do not have a biblical worldview. And it's it's sad, but it's true. Their view of life, their view of marriage, their view of children, their view of money, their view of church, their view of everything is not necessarily a biblical worldview. Though they have repented and followed Christ, they do not yet have a biblical worldview. Maybe you want to write down another phrase. This is a phrase that psychologists and philosophers use. They use this phrase, noetic structure, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic structure. It's kind of a mouthful. makes you sound kind of smart, doesn't it? You can use that to your friends later on. And you'll be—they'll be very impressed or annoyed. Your noetic structure, philosophers say, is really all that you believe—a a summation, a webbing together, all the true, all, all your beliefs, all the things that you believe that are true, all the believe, things that you believe but are false, all your assumptions, all your desires, all your experience—all of that wrapped together into sort of a, a web or a structure of thought. It's a very complicated web. It's a very. In interweaved web of understanding of life and the world. Some of those beliefs are, are conscious. You've, you've thought about them. You've, you've dwelt on these things. You've formulated them as you've con- gone through life. Well, I would like to raise kids this way. Or maybe it's too late. My kids turned out bad. I would do it differently now. This is what I believe. And I'm going to try to teach my kids to raise their kids better than I did. I think all of us feel that a little bit. Today, by the way, my daughter Chloe, my oldest daughter, is... Uh, Entering into college today is her first day. Mama's dropping her off in California, of all places, and and uh, there's a lot of tears in California right now. Uh, I got choked up this morning. Becky described how they cheered and celebrated and brought her into campus. And, and uh, you know, we, we always want our kids to be better than us. We want them to do better. We want them to have what we think as we've gotten older, we've developed we, our, our worldview, our noetic structure has changed. And we, we want them to know that stuff at a young age, not find it out later like we did. We want them to understand these things now. And that's what a noetic structure or a worldview is. What you believe deep down inside about everything about marriage, money, children, work, the government, today's world, disease, politics, elections. What you believe about all those things wrapped up all together, that is your noetic structure, and that sort of is the foundation for your worldview. Your noetic structure and your worldview then determine all of your actions. All of your decisions, everything you do, is based on your worldview and your noetic structure. Everything you do, every decision you make. You may not even think about a lot of decisions you make. You may not even go through your mind. Okay, what's my worldview about socks or wearing them? Right? What is my worldview? No, you just make these decisions. But these decisions are based on fundamental ideas that you hold about life, about world, about the world around you, your noetic structure. Well, in the Bible, God has given us His worldview. He has given us His thoughts on all that He has created and His thoughts about the things I just mentioned, marriage, kids, money, death, and so on. What is presented in the Bible is not just some stories and maybe a plan of salvation. You know, the plan of salvation and those stories all point to this larger narrative, this biblical worldview. And the climax of that worldview is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just some good stories. It's not just some plan to get in good with God. It is a whole worldview, a whole way of thinking, a biblical worldview. Now, I'm going to wreck some of our excuses that a lot of people use through the years. Most of us assume... That our beliefs, our noetic structure, or our worldview is pretty much correct. It's, it's the, the actions that we struggle with. That's what most people will present themselves. And when I talk to folks, I do a lot of counseling. I do a, a meet with a lot of people just about every Sunday... I don't know if you know this, almost every Sunday, that's when I use after the main worship service, and we have uh, Sunday school, a lot of times I use that time to do counseling, and I meet with people, and and almost every time people say something like this, well, I know what's right. My problem is not in the knowledge or the theology or the, the worldview stuff. My problem is in acting out what's right. Well, the truth is they're wrong. Because if you really believe what you say you believe, you would act differently. Most of us think that our deepest thoughts, our deepest views are, are fine. They don't need to be altered. They don't need to be changed. They don't need to be sanctified. We sin because we're just sort of struggling in terms of discipline. And that may be partially true. But you've forgotten what I just said about worldview or noetic structure. Everything you do is based on what you really believe. You may say that you believe looking at pornography destroys you, but if you keep on looking at it, you really don't believe that. If you did, you'd stop. You may say that you believe outbursts of anger and frustration are sinful and unhelpful, but if you really believed that, you'd stop. You'd stop having those fits of rage. You may say that you firmly believe that you, as a Christian, should be telling people the the, the love of Christ and the message of the gospel. But if you're not actually doing that, you don't really believe that down deep inside. Are you guys with me? The process of sanctification, the process of you becoming more and more like Jesus and more and more holy like God's Son, that process is not just about external stuff, just sort of moral reformation, changing your activities, being more disciplined. It is about those things, but it's also about planting deep into your heart and deep into your mind a biblical worldview, changing your noetic structure. You're not just after external changes. You're not just after moral reformation. You're after a whole worldview shift, a change in thought patterns. You're going to pursue something deeper, a heart reformation, a mind reformation. It's what Paul calls a transformation. How? By the renewing of your mind. Remember the song that we sing from time to time? Maybe if I'd have thought about it earlier, I would have asked Steve to sing it this morning. It's the song, Speak, O Lord. I think Stuart Townen wrote it. I get he's singing it, but I think Stuart Townen wrote it. Listen to some of the lyrics. You'll remember this as I, as I read this to you. Take your truth... Plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. So it starts with this truth getting planted deep in us, shaping us, fashioning us, making our minds and our thoughts and our worldview, our noetic structure, more like Christ, so that then our actions, our deeds, our deeds done in true faith and to the glory of God. You see, it's not just externals. You should saturate your mind with the truths of Scripture. You swim in the worldview of the Word of God, God's worldview. He's given us this worldview in the Bible. You, you want not just those obvious sort of blatant conscious things, theological truths that we see in Scripture. You want everything, every last detail to to get into your mind and saturate you. One of the reasons that we saturate our our main service, our Sunday morning services, with the reading of Scripture, the reading of Scripture, the reading of Scripture. There's two reasons. One, because that's what Paul told Timothy to do when it comes to corporate worship he says give yourself to the reading of scripture and that means the public reading of scripture in front of the congregation but the second reason is because we believe that's how god's people are sanctified that's how their worldview changes just by saturating them with the word of god it's sad you can go to churches and the word of god is just sort of some sort of byproduct my little thing like oh yeah we're christian so let me give you this nice talk on how to be a good parent and i'll throw in some some a verse here and a verse there Now, the Word of God ought to drive everything we do in worship. You worship Him in spirit. Most scholars agree what that means is we worship God because you have been regenerated. The spirit has come to you. You worship Him in spirit, not just emotion, but in spirit because God has changed you, and in what? Truth. Do we just come up with truth, what we feel? No. We look to the Word of God. So our songs, our worship service is full of biblical truth. Why? Because we want to saturate ourselves with the one thing that will change our worldview, the Word of God. Well, in the Bible, this idea of a comprehensive worldview, it's presented to us in a number of different ways. Paul liked to use the illustration of a, a structure or a house even a temple, there's a foundation, there's things that are built on the foundation. That sort of produces a framework. He also liked to use, the Apostle Paul liked to use the illustration of the body, where there's a head that determines everything, and there's this body that follows along. But the most obvious way in the Bible to to start to appropriate a biblical worldview is to adopt God's view from the Bible, God's view of time, to take a chronological, really a timeline. There is a timeline that is presented to us in Scripture, isn't there? A chronological time-time. It has a time uh, structure. It has a, a beginning. It has a middle. It has an end. The beginning, of course, is the creation of the world. That's where it starts. And you think about just those first four words of the Bible, it starts to give us a worldview. In the beginning, God The Bible presents God as the creator, and thus the one who has the authority to determine what is the purpose of everything, the objective of everything that he's doing. He's the one who has the right to define the universe, the the purpose, the, the nations, the leaders, the families, the marriages. He has the right. After all, he created it for a certain purpose, and therefore, he has a right to determine what its purposes are. Right there on those first four words, for instance, we can know that a biblical worldview says that God defines gender and marriage. Right there, in the beginning, God. God defines nature. God defines man's responsibility in this earth. God gives us to this, gives us to us. He has the authority to define for us. So right there at the beginning, just in those first four words, we start to adopt a biblical worldview. There at the beginning, a couple chapters later, God says there is a, a fall. Mankind rebels against what God had defined. I was talking to someone right before the service, and we were talking about the idea of free will. The only time that humans actually had true free will was in the garden. They were able to do what was right. They were able to do what was wrong. They were were free to do anything they wanted. They were free. They had full choice. They chose wrongly, and they cast the human race into a curse. It's what theologians call original sin. From that point forward, we're in in captivity. We're held. We're dead in sin, the Apostle Paul says. We're held captive. We're not free any longer. We are now captive to sin and death. Again, this is presented to us in just those first few chapters of the Bible. That's the beginning. Then you have the middle. The middle you can think of as the incarnation. Incarnation. There at the beginning, God had promised that He would not just leave it at that, but because of His great glory, uh, because of His great love, He would send a Redeemer. And so the middle, you have this incarnation. You have God arriving in human form, God in the flesh. He's carrying out this plan. He's, he's marching through time. He has a plan for time, a beginning, a middle, and here is the time that He sends His Son into the world. And His plan of redemption is to free us from sin... And death to redeem us. So Jesus provides his life, the, the perfect life, as a substitute for our muddied righteousness. He provides a, a perfect atoning death to, make, to pay the perfect price that we could never pay for our sin. And he is resurrected, providing us uh, victory over death and over sin. He provided all that for those who would believe, who would surrender and follow Jesus. So Jesus begins that that next age, that that age of in-gathering, as people start to look to Jesus and find that love and find that truth, and and they're convicted of their sin. As we talked about last week, they they surrender everything. Now, this is the age of the in-gathering. Then you have the end. And the end is when there before God's throne, there is a great mass of humanity, all human beings, all people there, and there is this separation. Those who are true children, gathered up to Him, and those who are not, separated from them. And those who have believed and followed Christ, have stopped relying on their own righteousness, on their own works, started relying on Christ alone, have realize the truth of the gospel and have been transformed and actually are doing what is good by the power of the spirit these people are gathered up to god those who have not they're cast into eternal darkness of fire punished eternally that is where it's all heading that's the end well all that to say this In the parable before us, the first parable we're looking at today, Jesus is presenting us with a worldview, a chronological timeline, a worldview, an overarching. Most of us probably have adopted that already in this room Uh, on a day like today. I think most of us here would have already had that mentality, but we wanted to plant it deeper. We want to put it deeper into us. We want to believe it more. We want to see the glory of that kind of worldview even better, and I hope to do that today as we look at this first parable and the second parable as well the second parable we find out Jesus asked that question do you understand all these things and we'll get to what that means but basically he's saying I want you guys to know all this and believe all this do you understand all this and so he's giving us essentially if you think about this chronology he's not really talking about the beginning that much but he's talking about the the middle time the incarnation while he's there This is the beginning of the end, so to speak, right? I mean, this is when the dragnet, to use the picture here, this is when the dragnet is thrown in and it starts to move towards that end, starts to move toward the shore. The end is coming. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. And then he focuses most of his time on that first parable on what happens at that end, that separation, that end gathering and that separation, now, uh, just to speak a little bit about that parable, uh, just for a couple moments, and then we'll give you a little outline. Uh, as with today, there were multiple different kinds of way of, of fishing. You could fish with a pole, you could fish with a small net. Uh, they would go onto the shores, much like we see even on our own island. We see people can go into a into a, a little reef that's come up on the shore, and they can cast a little net and draw it up, and cast a little net and draw it up, and and catch the fish that are that are caught there. But there was also the seine net, S E I N seine net. And the same net was simply the dragnet. The dragnet was a net that was uh, put between two boats and dragged toward the shore. In fact, they would tie rocks on the bottom of the same net to keep the bottom of it at the bottom of the, the water, and then they would row hard. And they, as they rowed hard, these two boats would row hard and draw everything that was not water, would draw everything up toward the shore. you think about it, they would drag a lot up toward the shore through the water. They would drag up sticks, logs, broken pots. They would drag up good fish, but also inedible fish. Some of you people eat eel. I don't. That would be thrown in the lake of fire as far as I'm concerned. But these things would be gathered up. They would be taken to the shore. If you think about a dragnet today, they bring up all kinds of rubbish that people have thrown away. Water bottles, tires, things like that. And then what would happen after they dragged this net up to the shore is they would do this long, tedious work of separation. The fishermen's job had just started at that point. They they had just barely done any work in that hard rowing. At that point, they would then need to separate. And they would do this hard work of separating things, throwing away the junk and keeping the good. And so Jesus used this image. The people would have understood this. There they were in Galilee. They probably watched it happen a million times as people used different types of fishing. This was a known type. All fishermen would have been proficient in all of these ways. In fact, we see at least a couple of ways that the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who were fishermen, we see them doing it different ways. But Jesus used this image to display for us a biblical worldview, particularly a timeline, a chronological biblical worldview. Again, that's the parable there in verses 47 to 50. And then in 51 and 52, he demonstrates how desperately he wants them to understand and adopt this worldview and plant it down deep in their hearts. And by so doing, they would surpass the rest of uh, humanity, that is. It would surpass humanity in terms of their knowledge and their understanding of the way things really are. All right, let's take some notes. The first two points I'm going to give represent that first parable. The the third point I'm going to give today represents the second parable, the final parable he tells there. In God's great plan of the kingdom, first of all, we see a number one great gathering. A great gathering. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Here is this image of the dragnet. I just explained it to you. And so that we all know what's happening here, there's there's presumed freedom, but there's not freedom. I mean, in history, many scholars, many secular people believe that they in their worldview, they believe that history just continues, there's no beginning, there's no end, maybe there's some cycles, maybe there's some squiggles, maybe things change, but there's really not a timeline, there's not a beginning, middle, and end, there's nothing, it's just evolution that constantly goes and goes and goes, and there is no end, and there is no beginning. Nothing meaningful, no destination, no real chronology, no beginning, no end. And Jesus' parable illustrates the exact opposite. This is all heading somewhere. There is a great net that's moving inexorably toward the end, toward the shore. And even if there are millions, perhaps billions of little fish who are completely unaware and feel completely free, they are not. The net is moving closer and closer. One pastor I read who was preaching this said, Imagine a little fish swing along there, and he feels the bump of the net behind him. What does he do? Well, he just shoots forward. He thinks, oh, what was that? He doesn't realize that his ocean is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and before he knows it, he's going to be drugged, flipping and flopping up onto the shore. The end is near, but this little fish is blind to it. He doesn't want to be a follower of Christ. He wants to do his own thing, and so he's blind to this truth. It's interesting, by the way, I was thinking about this time of Jesus speaking, even back up in the last parable, a couple of parables we talked about, the, the parable of the pearl of great value, the hidden treasure. It says in the section before that that Jesus went to the house and spoke to the disciples. It's possible that this parable was, was not spoken to the crowd this parable was about the disciples, and he was trying to pound into the minds, the hearts of his disciples this particular worldview. Perhaps even the lost people weren't hearing this, but Jesus gives this to, this to the folks that were standing around them to tell them, adopt my way of thinking. Well, this parable makes it clear. Jesus had inaugura- inaugurated the kingdom, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of the end. Jesus has arrived, established his kingdom, the net was cast. The fishermen began to row. And even if it's invisible to most, even if it's ignored by most, there is this great gathering. There is this, this mass of humanity moving closer and closer and closer to the end of time. Every year, every month, every week, day, hour, minute, second, we are one step closer to the end. Time is marching forward, but it's not marching forward to nothing, it's marching forward to the end. Every tick of the clock marks one second closer. To this day, this is one of those truths that Christians have been mocked for throughout the centuries, haven't we? And we all sort of mock the guy that walks on the street with a sandwich board that says, uh, The end is near, repent or burn. And while I might disagree with his method of evangelism, um, he's right, he's exactly right. This is happening. He's just pointing out the fact that, that Jesus is pointing out here. This, this net is being drawn toward the shore. The end is coming. Second Peter 3 tells us, the beginning of verse 3 says, "'Scoffers will come in the last days.'" And by last days, he means this era, until the, the end of time, this era, this church age. And these scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the Father fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. What are they saying? It says they they go on in their wicked desires, they go on in their their sinful desires. It, It means they're saying, Listen, there's no judgment. I can do whatever I want. There's no judgment. There's no coming wrath of God or return of Jesus and judgment and hell. There's none of that. I can do whatever I want. And they mock people. They mock Christians for believing. They say things have marched on ever since the beginning. Nothing's changed. We're not getting any closer to anything. Nothing. When it says they ask where is the promise of His coming. They're not ask, actually asking where the promise is. They know the promises are found in Scripture of, and in Jesus' words about His coming. What they're saying is where is the fulfillment of the promise of His coming? And that happens in every age, right? Secular people... How can you guys hope 2,000 years ago some ancient teacher, a little teacher walking in Galilee said he's coming back? You still believe that? Kind of ridiculous. Peter points this out. This is what happens. But then he says, verse 5 of Second Peter 3, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So they purposefully reject creation. Is that happening? Yeah. They purposefully ignore evidence. They purposefully turn a blind eye to the fact that there was a beginning, there was a creation, there was a God who spoke, and the world was created. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. And that by, and that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged, that means flooded, with water and perished. That by the same, world, same word, the heavens and earth now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that... With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and as a, th- a thousand years as one day. What's Peter saying here? He's giving us some worldview stuff, isn't he? The secular worldview says there is no end of days, there is no return of Christ, there is no judgment. That's all a joke. But Peter reminds us one, there is a beginning. Creation did not exist in eternity past, there was a creation. There was a start to all this. Second, Peter reminds them, God does judge. It's interesting. Even in secular uh, history, secular records, there are records of a great flood. There are records of this happening. Even though they they skew it and change it and come up with other things, there are records of a great flood. And and a lot of them actually include records of an individual with his family who was saved from the great flood. It's stunning. And yet the world just forgets. So God doesn't judge the world. Nothing really ever happens. I don't think we feel that way now, right? (laughs) With this disease going around, we feel like, yeah, God can judge. God can bring hardship. Third thing, Peter reminds them, God is not bound by time. Did you hear that last couple of verses? For us what is a thousand years for him is just a day he's not under time he created time if you think about it he's the one that created the universe created the solar system created this cycle of time and seasons and everything that we go through god created all that and therefore he dwells above it so it's not like god is up in heaven just sort of like okay what time am i supposed to do that come back and judge no it's all one thing for him God actually goes on, Peter goes on to say, one of the reasons that God gives us all this time is because He doesn't want people to perish. There, there is the, the, uh, the moral will of God that desires that all come to repentance. All are compelled. Uh, Lena and I were talking last Sunday. All are compelled by God's kindness and Christ's love for us. And that's God's moral will that we all come to repentance. And so He's patient. He's giving people time. He's giving mercy. But ladies and gentlemen, what Peter says, what Jesus says, that there is an end to all of this. The end is joy and reunion and worship and glory and fellowship for those who are believers. And guess what? We get to hug and even kiss one another in glory. I don't worry about any diseases. But for unbelievers, it will come like a thief in the night. Unwanted, scary, painful, deadly dragnet will bring them ashore when they least expect it. And what's so scary about it all? Jesus tells us after that great gathering at the end of the age, there is, and this is number two, a great separation. There is a great separation. Verse 48, look there again, when it was full, speaking of the net, the men drew it ashore, and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is the exact same thing, almost word for word, except for the illustration is a little bit different, but almost word for word what he said in verse 40. Look up in verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I was reading a commentator this week, and uh, he asked a simple question. He said, what's so unique about this? Why did Jesus feel like He needed to repeat Himself? He says almost the exact thing. Why is He just giving them another Illustration of the same thing. What's he doing here? What's so special about this truth that maybe wasn't contained in the first time he said it? And the answer is, what's unique about this, this, the special thing about this parable is that this truth is now repeated. It is a repeated truth. In other words, Jesus is pounding this worldview into the hearts and minds of his followers. There is a coming judgment. There is a coming judgment. There is a day of great separation. Don't forget Pounding this into their hearts, into their worldview, the end of the ungodly will be horrifying, it will be terrible. It will come upon them suddenly. There will be this great judgment. For those of us who love Christ, there will be great glory and fellowship. Let me offer some important facts that we can derive from what Jesus says here about his judgment. One thing, it is sudden. Again, the fish that are getting nearer and nearer are are virtually clueless. They don't know what's about to happen. Again, they feel like they're free. They're floating around. They feel like the ocean's just as big as it always was. Little do they know, in just a moment, there will be no water to breathe. There'll be no more breath for them. And they'll be yanked up on shore, flipping and flopping all around. And only then will they realize their situation. Second thing is this judgment is perfect. Here on earth, there is, in this gathering era, there is a mixture, weeds and wheat. Bad fish, good fish, but the separation will be totally just. We can't do it now. We can't see it now. We can't know people's hearts now. We try to have church, and God instructs us to have church and to try to keep the church as pure as possible. But in the end, we cannot even know one another's hearts In the end, someone could actually potentially live their life in church and act like a perfectly good Christian, yet never have repented and had genuine faith. Now, I think one of the instructions Jesus gives later on in Matthew 16 is that it ought to be hard for someone who is unrepentant and unbroken to survive in a church, that if they're like that, their sins will find them out, and it will be obvious that they don't belong to you. And so you put them out of the church, Jesus will tell them. But nevertheless, in spite of what the instruction Jesus gives about the church, this is talking about the world, not the church, and there's a mixture. There's a mixture of these things, and when this thing is finally gathered to the shore, there will be absolutely perfect justice. There's a lot of talk about what's just and what's right. Justice is a big word today, right? Let me tell you something. Our lawmakers may be able to come up with some better laws. Surely they can. They kind of stink now, don't they? Surely they can come up with something better. Surely they can do a better job. If they'd stop doing politics year-round, maybe they can start getting to lawmaking and actually make some good laws. Surely they can come up with things that are more just and more equitable. But let me tell you something. Anything they come up with will be full of holes, full of sin, full of bad motives. It will not be perfectly just. The only time that perfect justice will happen is when this happens god is on his throne when jesus is separating with his angels the good and the bad that will be perfect justice we won't question we won't say well hang on a second that was my son and i prayed with him you'll say you are doing exactly what's right god that's my spouse hey he went to church she went to church their whole life you'll see god do it and you will know this is perfect justice Hang on a second, God. I went to church. I did this. You may say those things, but God will say to you, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's perfect justice. Perfect justice. There will be no question that perfect justice will be executed. So it's sudden, it's perfect. Three, it is final. God has a predetermined plan, He's executing. It will not fail, it will not falter and when it is done it is over it's finished the final state of things and Jesus speaks of here is total eternal permanent separation one group being punished forever and let me just remind you people don't get to hell and suddenly get all repentant okay that doesn't happen One of the best illustrations of that is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, when he speaks to God, when he sees this great gulf, he doesn't say, okay, I give, I repent, I want to follow Christ. No. What does he say? Go tell my brothers. He doesn't repent. People in hell do not repent. They continue to curse God. They continue to hate God. They don't get down there and suddenly have this moment of regeneration and suddenly they're deciding to follow Christ. No. They continue to sin and they continue to pay for their sin for eternity. It's permanent. It's a permanent fixture. And that's what it says in that story of the rich man and Lazarus, which was most likely a true story if you look at the language there. There's a permanent gulf fixed between him and Lazarus who is with God. So this is a final separation, punishment and glory. So you have to get this into your mind. You have to get this into heart. I always pray that. I pray that in every sermon... Uh, that sinners will repent, that they'll see the day of judgment coming, coming for them, see that they've never repented, they've never truly experienced the love of Christ, that they'll see that they, their destiny is judgment, but that the love of Christ, they see what Christ has done and be so compelled, so moved, that they would repent and follow Christ. That's what my prayer every single sermon. And my prayer is also for believers, the daily reminder This is not just a warning for someone else. This is a joyous truth to which we hold dear. In days like this where there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of vitriol, where there's a lot of disease, a lot of natural disaster, we look forward to that day when God, because of His great name, will make all things right, will judge righteously, and make this great separation. Well, this brings us to a third and final truth spoken to us by Jesus here in the last part. There is a, number three, great knowledge. There's a great knowledge. Jesus says in verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And this is where we get the idea that maybe he is with his disciples. I mean, it doesn't seem like he's talking to this large, massive crowd of people, but he is indeed what it says back up in the verse 36 or something where he's, with a smaller group, with his disciples alone. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. A couple things here I want us to see from this and we'll be finished. Jesus asks his men, have you understood all things? Now, I don't think that Jesus expected them to understand every last detail, all the nuances, the overall scope, the very clear understanding of the gospel. I don't think Jesus was asking them, do they understand comprehensively everything that I've said? No way. Clearly, he's not asking this. Do you understand this perfectly? He knew they didn't, and they knew they would do all sorts of remedial training and explanation. So I don't think they would answer if Jesus would have asked that question. Do you understand everything I've said perfectly? I think if Jesus asked that question, I think they would say, no, we don't. I think they knew they needed more training and had more questions. So I think the, the best way to interpret this is that Jesus was asking this question, do you believe all this? Do you believe all this? Have you captured this truth? Are you following me in all of this? Are you with me? It's really the question. I ask that sometimes when I preach, are you with me? Do you understand? You following this? You believing this? You you with this? And as best they can, they answer yes. And that brings up an important point about following Christ, about being a Christian, to be a Christian, to be a true Christ follower. Jesus does not ask that you have a perfectly biblical worldview, but that you are committed to a biblical worldview. To become a Christian, Jesus does not demand that you come to Him as a perfect person, but that you are committed to following Him and His perfection. He does not demand moral flawlessness, but that you're surrendered to His Lordship in all your life. Are you with me? he says. You're not asking if they're perfect. He's not asking if they have perfect understanding. He's saying, are you committed to this? Are you with me? Do you believe this? Perhaps Jesus is saying by his spirit the same thing to your own heart. You're hearing this. Maybe you've heard it. Everybody in this room has been here many, many times. Maybe you've heard it over and over and over, but maybe even in these moments you're realizing, I don't know that I've ever truly followed Christ. I don't have intellectually believed all things, but maybe now I'm realizing that Jesus did provide His righteousness for me because I don't have enough righteousness to get me to heaven. That Jesus did provide atonement for my sin because I couldn't, in a million eternities in hell, I could never pay for my sin. I would go on sinning. And Jesus provides for me in His resurrection victory over death and sin. All those things I could not provide for myself. And Maybe Jesus is asking you through His Spirit right now, are you with me? Maybe you'd say, I am. I follow. If you are, I'd encourage you just to cry out to God in repentance and faith and tell God, I'm with you. I'm following Christ. I believe in these things. It's not just intellectual. I believe. I want to follow. I want to saturate with my mind. With God's Word. Surrender all. And then tell others. Tell others what Christ has done in your heart. There have been many times, many times, not just once or twice, but many times since I've been here that people have come to me after the service, maybe maybe just after the service, maybe two weeks after the service, maybe a month after the service, and they come to me and they say, on that day, as you preached, I finally repented. And maybe that's you today. Let somebody know. Come tell me. Tell somebody else. Well, this is, brings us to that final idea here left by Jesus. Verse 52 actually gives us the last actual parable. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What does this mean? It means you're a person who has surrendered to his truth, who says, yes, I follow you. If you're if you've done that, you're like a scribe, Jesus says, who's been trained. And a scribe who's adopted that, who follows Christ in that, who's, who's gathered that to himself, someone who's followed Christ in this, they can't keep it to themselves. They're like a, an old king, and this is what he's presenting here. The master of the house is, is like the, old, the kings of old, who when the, a visitor would come, and we see this happen with Solomon and the, the queen of Sheba, right? She comes, and he shows them the glories of his kingdom. He doesn't just hoard away the treasure. He demonstrates it. Other people can enjoy it. Other people see it. He can't keep it in. It has to be demonstrated and spoken of. Uh, I'm a, a fan of cars. I love cars. I have uh, My dad bought me when I think I was like seven or eight years old. He subscribed me to Car and Driver magazine, and I've been reading that ever since. It's changed editors a thousand times. It's I read it. I read it every month. I read the whole thing, pretty much cover to cover, and I stay up on cars. I enjoy cars. And what I've realized in, in, in looking at cars and studying cars is there's there's a, a type of car collector. Most of us use cars just to get from point A to point B, and that's all cars are to us. But there's a type of car collector. Actually, there's two types of car collectors. There's one type of car collector that is in car collecting just for the fringe benefits. It's an investment. They're wealthy. They have lots of money. They purchase a car, and their objective of that car is to make money. So they, they put, you know, in ten years, they put eight miles on the car. They, they take meticulous care of it. They never get it out. They never drive it. They certainly don't let anybody look at it or touch it. They keep it down in the garage. They're actually, they find these things all the time, these, these car collections that are in somebody's basement down somewhere. No one's ever seen it. No one ever knew about it. And that kind of car collector, most car enthusiasts would agree, is not a person who actually likes cars. Because if you really like cars, you'll be like a second kind of car collector that purchases a car and then drives the wheels off it, invites people to ride it, drives it around town, waves at people. As they, they wave at him at his special little car. That's a true car collector. That's a real car collector because he loves cars so much he can't keep it in. He's got to give it to everyone else and let everyone else enjoy this. Well, this is in a much greater way, in a much more spiritual way. This is what Jesus is saying in this parable. Someone who has this truth, someone who's like a scribe, learn this this biblical worldview, The, the more they learn it, the more they hear it, the more they understand it, the more they want to tell others and show others this wonderful truth. That's what we ought to be, shouldn't we? You take these truths, you share them with others. You share them, you give these truths to others. Well, let's pray that we as Christians would obey the words of Jesus right here. Father, we do thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for this biblical worldview that you're presenting us with. Lord, I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind, that we would saturate our lives with your word. Lord, the world presents us with all kinds of things that we ought to be preoccupied with, movies, TV, news, car collecting, all kinds of stuff. Lord, we want to be Addicted and pouring into our hearts all the time the truths of your word. Lord, I realize as a pastor it's easy for me to get up and preach about these things because I get paid to study your word. I get paid to to invest lots of time knowing and studying your word. But Lord, I pray that you would grant then the folks who are not preachers even more grace and more discipline than even is required of me in this instance, that they would sit and read and study and be changed by Your Word. I pray that we would then, as believers, then turn around and share these truths with others. Lord, so much of of what church is, is sharing the truth. It's coming in and, and feasting on truth together. And Lord, a meal is prepared and it's set before us and we all get to feast on these truths. Lord, may we commit our hearts to that. and We thank You that we can indeed do that openly and freely. As a body. And Lord, I always pray for those who don't know you. I pray that they see this great separation coming, and I pray that they would repent and trust Christ, surrendering everything. Grant them the faith and the repentance they need to obey you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.